homage to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Today's session, we're looking at the misery of corruption. And when there's a problem in our world, it's always helpful to turn to the Buddha's words to try and understand what is going on, rather than to seek more information from the world that is confusing. In today's Dhamma session, we're going to be primarily looking at the Adhamika Sutta. This is Anguttarikaya Chapter 4, Discourse Number 70. This is a very helpful sutta when it comes to trying to understand what the world is going through, all the misery, turbulence and decline in terms of our economy, shortages and much more. In this session, we'll go over the Adhamika Sutta, then we'll launch into different suttas that look at both the side of corruption as well as what happens when we are more righteous. So we'll look at the Gandha Tinduka Jataka, which is the story of an unrighteous king. We'll also delve into what happens when the system becomes corrupt and how society declines. We'll then look at what is to be expected from crooked karma. So we're trying to correct our view. And in terms of the righteous side, there are a number of Jatakas that are very helpful. There's the simile of the right fig from the Rajavada Jataka and also the story of Prince Temia from the Mukapaka Jataka. This is one that we have covered before. And then looking at understanding how integrity and Dhamma underpin prosperity. And finally, to end the session, we'll also briefly touch on the supramundane perspective. Let's begin by looking at the word Adhamika, which also happens to be the name of the sutta. There are different translations in English for this word, ranging from unrighteous, unlawful, unprincipled, improper, corrupt, illegitimate, bad, wrong, criminal, fraudulent, immoral, unjust, dishonorable, dishonest, illegal, unethical, and even crooked. We get the picture of what the Buddha means when he uses this word, Adhamika, and that it is rooted in the unwholesome, greed, hatred, and delusion. But it can also be translated to as the opposite of Dhamma, or non-Dhamma, or even not in line with the Dhamma. So as we go through this sutta, it's good to bear in mind on this particular side of corruption, what the Buddha is actually meaning. In terms of the sutta architecture for the Adhamika Sutta, it's fairly straightforward. The Buddha begins with the teaching on what to expect when a leader is corrupt, so not in line with the Dhamma. And the short answer is misery, but of course there's more to this teaching than just that. In essence, the natural order of things goes off kilter and the country and its citizens fall into decline and our lifespan shortens. And then the Buddha explains what to expect when a leader is righteous or not corrupt and therefore in line with the Dhamma. And the short answer is ease, well-being. And we will delve into what the Buddha has to teach on this. So the natural order of things flows as it should and the country and its citizens prosper and our lifespan extends. And then finally, the Buddha gives this very important simile of cattle crossing the ford as they follow the chief bull. It's very helpful to contemplate this simile particularly given where the world finds itself in terms of global corruption, disparity, pandemics, climate change, and more. Let's now go straight into the sutta and hear the Buddha's words. So he says, 
because when kings or leaders are corrupt, the royal vassal, so in this case, this could mean military, government and supporters become corrupt. When the royal vassals become corrupt, Brahmins and householders become corrupt. When Brahmins and householders become corrupt, the people of the towns and countrysides become corrupt. When the people of the towns and countrysides become corrupt, the sun and moon proceed off course. When the sun and moon proceed off course, the constellations and the stars proceed off course. When the constellations and the stars proceed off course, day and night proceed off course. The months and fortnights proceed off course. The seasons and years proceed off course. When the seasons and years proceed off course, the winds blow off course and at random. When the winds blow off course and at random, the deities become upset. When the deities become upset, sufficient rain does not fall. When sufficient rain does not fall, the crops ripen irregularly. When people eat crops that ripen irregularly, they become short-lived, ugly, weak and sickly. The Buddha is giving us this cause and effect of when we have rulers or leaders who are corrupt. What is very interesting is the flow-on effect of that leader being corrupt. Rather than stopping at the leader who has set the precedent for corruption, corruption finds its way trickling down to every part of society. If we can accept this, then there is something quite liberating about this knowledge. We are no longer simply subject to corruption and the victim of the whole thing, which is the common way of seeing it. Instead, if we investigate and look in the mirror, we might find areas where we too have become corrupt. And that is where it can be very empowering because the greatest change that we can affect starts with ourselves. So the question to ask is, is it true that corruption flows from leader to supporters to the rest of society? Now that is a relatively easy question to answer, particularly if we look out at the world around us. It doesn't matter which part of the globe you examine, it's all the same. And corruption at all levels of society can be seen. So let's run through a few examples in no particular order and in no specific direction. The first example is politicians and governments who are free to commit crimes with total impunity beyond the reach of law. Politicians who make secret deals and give preferential terms for benefit or gain down the track public servants or government administrators who wrought the system and siphon off taxpayer money, military who misuse their powers, authority and government assets, governments who collude, bully and deceive other governments of other nations, resulting in trade wars, sanctions, financial wars and even kinetic military action, governments and leaders that use propaganda, disinformation, censorship, false narratives, fake news, profiling, use controlled opposition, targeting, abuse of power, fear-mongering and oppression. Officials who hijack and misuse foreign aid or charitable donations for personal benefit. Tax authorities that put in place tax regimes that favour the wealthy but target the rest of society. High-value individuals who siphon funds to offshore accounts to avoid tax. Political parties that use aggressive voter manipulation, voter fraud and election rigging to win power. Lawmakers that enact laws in favour of the few but not the majority. Judiciary that takes bribes and rarely convicts those that are guilty of massive crimes. 
law enforcement that doesn't enforce the law and turns the blind eye, or law enforcement that targets specific individuals and groups, state prosecutors who don't prosecute criminals but take bribes to turn the other way, law enforcement agencies that allow evidence to go missing in custody and find ways to make criminal proceeds in custody disappear, union leaders who take bribes to the detriment of their members and the rest of society, regulators who rule in favour of certain companies so that they can make profits, and once they leave their regulatory posts receive plum jobs with those companies, leaders and governments who endorse systems that promote debt enslavement at a country level, business level and citizen level, leaders who indulge in jobs for families and friends, auditors and financial regulators who are not independent but succumb to client or business pressure, businesses who undertake corrupt or unethical practices to make profit. What we hear about are various scams, collusions, insider trading, bribes, dodgy deals and more. Doctors who take perks from pharmaceutical companies to push specific drugs to patients whether they need them or not. Banks that collude to set rates and make lucrative gains. Banks and businesses that launder money for others. And then there's groups of investors or individuals involved in insider trading on the stock market, collusion and spoofing. Principals of schools, colleges and universities who accept bribes for student admission that is not in line with admission on their own merits or performance. Media companies that push particular narratives to the unsuspecting public. Social media influencers who push certain products or values but don't declare business relationships or getting paid to promote things. Sports cheats who take performance enhancing drugs or take bribes to rig matches or participate in underhanded tactics to cheat. Businesses who hold back inventory in order to create supply pressure in the market, only releasing the stock when prices have gone up. Individuals who massively hoard during difficult times and then sell on the black market at exorbitant prices. Workers who steal from their employers, from stock to stationery to fraudulent expense claims, money and so on. Creatives who plagiarise or steal another's original work. Scientists and academics who deceive through their work. Any kind of scamster or person who lies, cheats, deceives, pretends and steals from others and this could be through marriage, business, race, gender, religion and so forth. So this is just a few examples but you can see the roots of the unwholesome that are permeating through society and it can go right to the student who cheats on their exams. The terminology that comes to the forefront when we have a society riddled with corruption always has words in the news such as looting, trickery, deception, stealing, cheating, manipulation, coercion, laundering, fraud, heist, scams, shady dealings, and much more. What is also made clear through these examples is that defilements increase as these things take hold. If we run through the list of stains or mental defilements from the Vatupama Sutta, we can check them all off. The general theme that the Buddha is outlining is the one where society as a whole eventually thinks that person at the top is corrupt, as are their supporters, as is this system, or those groups, or that person. So it's okay if I do that too. 
It's okay to gain the system so long as I don't get caught. I'd better get my cut or I'll miss out. Everyone's doing it. And that's how it flows in the mind and through society. We'll look deeper into this as we get into our session, but you get the general idea that we can all be participating in a corrupt society. When we point a finger, as they say, it's always good to look at how many fingers are pointed back at oneself. Let's continue with our reading of the Sutta. And the Buddha now talks about righteousness and he says, Bhikkhus, when kings or leaders are righteous, the royal vassals, so as we said before, the military, government and the supporters become righteous. When the royal vassals become righteous, Brahmins and householders become righteous. When Brahmins and householders become righteous, the people of the towns and countrysides become righteous. When the people of the towns and countryside become righteous, the sun and moon proceed on course. When the sun and moon proceed on course, the constellations and the stars proceed on course. When the sun and moon proceed on course, the constellations and the stars proceed on course. When the constellations and the stars proceed on course, day and night proceed on course. The months and fortnights proceed on course. The seasons and years proceed on course. When the seasons and years proceed on course, the winds blow on course and dependably. When the winds blow on course and dependably, the deities do not become upset. When the deities are not upset, sufficient rain falls. When sufficient rain falls, the crops ripen in season. When people eat crops that ripen in season, they become long-lived and beautiful. So here we see the wholesome roots of what the Buddha is highlighting when it comes to a righteous society that begins with a leader that is righteous. So this is a massive contrast to the earlier segment where the Buddha was teaching about corruption. So we're going to explore this a little more as we go along. And then the Buddha gives us a simile to contemplate. He says, when cattle are crossing a ford, if the chief bull goes crookedly, all the others go crookedly because their leader has gone crookedly. So too among human beings, when the one considered the chief behaves corruptly, other people do so as well. The whole country is miserable if the king or leader is corrupt. When cattle are crossing a ford, if the chief bull goes straight across, all the others go straight across because their leader has gone straight. So too among human beings, when the one considered the chief behaves righteously, other people do so as well. The whole country is easeful if the king or leader is righteous. So this is a very important sutta and simile to contemplate. When we look at the first part of this simile, where the Buddha is talking about the chief bull going crookedly and others following crookedly, we see that when there's a corrupt leader, if we follow that example, and that is at all levels of the world, then there's so much corruption. And what happens is our entire world is living in misery. That's something right now that is undeniable. So there's something in there for us to consider. If we're the leader of a family, if we're the leader of a business, any kind of leader, it's important to look at what we're doing, how we're influencing others. So even as parents, if we have corruptions in our activities, what kind of example are we setting for our children? If we are doing things in business, that has even the slightest sniff of corruption, what is that telling our employees? 
And so when we go to every aspect of our society, whether you're a professional, whether you're in law enforcement, whether you're in any part of the system, all the way up to the top, we're all contributing to misery if we're not doing what is right. And so when the Buddha talks about the chief bull that goes straight across and others who follow who go straight across, and because the leader is behaving righteously, everyone else does so as well. And then the whole country is easeful if the kings or leaders are righteous. If we think about it, if you follow someone like the Buddha, who is perfectly straight, then you know that there is so much ease. If you follow the teachings of the Buddha, then the whole world would be at ease. Unfortunately, that is not the case. But at the time of the Buddha, he would often give advice to the kings. And what we'll see from these teachings as we go through the rest of the session is how important that kind of guidance is needed at a time, not just in the past, but even now. Any king where they had followed the Buddha's advice, that kingdom prospered. The leaders and the supporters and all the citizens prospered in those kinds of kingdoms. So what it takes is we look at our society now and we're so miserable and we're so in the depths of despair and we think, oh, but it's so hard to change our leaders. But I think we all play a part in shining the light on what needs to be done. Change happens with ourselves first. Let's now spend a little time looking on the side of corruption and crooked leaders. Let's now bring in the Gandha Tinduka Jataka. This is Jataka number 334. This will help us to look a little deeper into the corrupt or unrighteous, unprincipled pathway. The Buddha recounts his past birth to King Pasanadi of Kosala. And at the time, there was a corrupt and evil king named Panchala. He ruled recklessly and unrighteously, and all his ministers likewise became unrighteous. And the people in his realm were oppressed and lived in fear of the heavy taxes and the crime and theft that was ruining the kingdom. In this past birth, the Bodhisattva was born as a tree deva, and annually the king would make an offering to him. Having witnessed the kingdom going to ruin, the Bodhisattva decided to admonish the king and give him advice. He went to visit the king and told him, King, you are careless in your rule, and so all your kingdom is going to ruin, as if it were the prey of hirelings. Kings that are careless in their rule are not masters of all their realm, but in this world they meet with destruction, and in the world to come they are reborn in hell. And when they are careless, both those within their domain and those outside it are careless too, and therefore a king ought to be exceedingly careful. The Bodhisattva then went on to admonish him some more. At the end of this admonishment, he advised the king to go and make amends by fixing all of the problems in his kingdom and not to continue to destroy the kingdom. So the king left his kingdom to his ministers and accompanied by his chaplain, left the city dressed in disguise and he went in search of answers across his kingdom. They encountered a number of people, the first of which was an old man who was wounded by a thorn that had pierced his foot. He was lamenting, having scattered thorns around his home to protect his home from thieves. And then they encountered a poor woman with two grown daughters at home, and she was in the forest gathering wood, 
and she had fallen while climbing a tree, so she lamented that there were no husbands for her daughters when times are bad. They also encountered a ploughman who was lamenting having had to wait on food brought late to him by his helper, and then the ploughshare fatally wounding his ox while he was distracted. Then they came across a milkman who had been viciously kicked by a cow which had overturned all the milk and he was lamenting having to milk a savage cow that had never been milked before. And then the village boys lamented how tax collectors had killed a calf for its skin to make a sword sheath, and how they saw the mother cow grieving over the calf and not eating or drinking. And then, in a certain dry tank, crows were striking frogs with their beaks and devouring them, and the frog was lamenting how when the realm was prosperous, the crows had plenty to eat, not having to kill and devour the frogs. In all instances that the king and his chaplain had come across these people, all these people had cursed the king. And the king realized the suffering he had caused and was still causing his subjects by not ruling righteously. And so he returned to the city and began to rule righteously, devoted to charity, generosity and other good works. And at the end of his account, the Buddha reiterated, A king, sire, must forsake evil courses and rule his kingdom righteously. When we hear this account from the Buddha of his past birth, we see that in this particular story, how the unrighteousness, the corruption, how it trickles down and flows throughout the rest of the kingdom. And what you can see is that at all levels of society, there is misery, there is suffering. And so unless that changes from the top, then what you can see is a kingdom, a world that becomes very, very miserable, ripe with crime, ripe with fraud and scams and things where people are constantly lamenting. And so we see parallels with what's happening in our world today. Let's now look at when the system becomes corrupt. It's evident to most of us that if our leaders and rulers are corrupt and the systems we rely on from the judiciary, government, law enforcement, business community, unions, lobby groups and so on, when it becomes corrupt, then it doesn't bode well for our world. It has a flow on effect across countries, major cities, towns, networks, communities, groups, families, and all the way down to individual citizens, including our children. In modern times, we have terms we use to label corrupt systems, such as kleptocracy. This is where a government is run by corrupt leaders or kleptocrats. They use political power to appropriate the wealth of the people and land that they govern. Many officials are complicit, where they deliberately work to enrich themselves, and then they use their accumulated wealth to perpetuate themselves in power. We also have the term kakistocracy, this is a government run by the worst, the least qualified, and or the most corrupt, unprincipled citizens. What we find is that they sometimes come together, producing a government that is both criminal and incompetent. When these two coincide, both the kleptocracy and kakistocracy, they feed back on each other. But whatever the case may be, we all pay the price of corrupt, weak and unqualified leaders at the top. Though the world may think it is evolving with innovative ideas and new technologies, 
The current state of our world shows all the signs of being in decline and devolving rapidly. When we studied the 16 dreams of King Pasenadi of Kosala in the Mahasupina Jataka, so this is Jataka number 77, we saw future decline that would result in drought and famine, corrupt judges, weak, selfish and corrupt leaders, immoral and unrighteous countries, rampant, shameless behaviour, and much, much more. Unfortunately, we've already seen many of the signs of downfall and decline, though we haven't hit rock bottom yet. Around the globe, we see that corruption at the top levels of government does not discriminate between developed and developing nations. If we look at the Corruptions Perceptions Index, or CPI, this is published by Transparency International. They give an index which ranks countries by their perceived levels of public sector corruption. And they generally define corruption as an abuse of entrusted power for private gain. If we look in the news headlines across the world, we do see court cases and instances, many instances, unfortunately, of such corruption. And what you can see on this slide is the 2021 CPI, which was published in January 2022. It ranks 180 countries on a scale from 100, which is very clean, to zero, which is highly corrupt. And you can see the color scheme. So Transparency International, through their work on the CPI, they confirm corruption is both a major cause and a result of poverty around the world. It occurs at all levels of society, from local and national governments, civil society, judiciary functions, large and small businesses, military and other services, and so on. Corruption affects the poorest the most, in rich or poor nations, though all elements of society are affected in some way as corruption undermines political development, democracy, economic development, the environment, people's health and more. Around the world, the perception of corruption in public places is very high, and it isn't just in governments that corruption is found. It can permeate through society. So these are the words from Transparency International. And unsurprisingly, what is happening in the world today supports and parallels the teaching of the Buddha in this Adhamika Sutta. We have referenced the Chakravati Sutta, this is Diganikaya Discourse number 26, a number of times in examining the moral decline of society and how human lifespan diminishes and there comes a time when people will have children who live for only 10 years. This teaching from the Buddha intersects with our topic today on the misery of corruption. If we look at this pathway that the Buddha gives in the Chakravati Sutta on the unwholesome side, what we see is that when we don't give to the poor, then poverty becomes widespread. When this is widespread, theft becomes widespread. As a result of this, weapons become widespread. And then killing living beings becomes widespread. When this is widespread, lying becomes widespread, followed by divisive speech becoming widespread. Then sexual misconduct becomes widespread. As a result of that, harsh speech and talking nonsense becomes widespread. Then we have covetousness and ill will becoming widespread. When that is widespread, wrong view becomes widespread. As a result of wrong view, illicit lust, rapacious greed and wrong dhamma become widespread. And when that happens, the lack of due respect for mother and father, ascetics and Brahmins, and failure to honour the family elders becomes widespread. Then the ten wholesome deeds will disappear, 
and the 10 unskillful deeds will greatly prosper. As a result of that, there's no recognition of status of mother, aunts or wives or partners of teachers and respected people. And then people will exist with acute misery present, acute ill will, malevolence and murderous thoughts. So this is a very dire situation that can be expected. And if you check what's happening in our communities and neighborhoods, towns, cities and countries, and then at a global level, you see that it rings true. If only our leaders would investigate the folly in their ways. Rather than increasing the disparity between wealthy and poor, it might be a better idea to open up the state coffers if there is any wealth and start giving out to the poor and to encourage the same with wealthy businesses and individuals and to encourage generosity as the guiding principle for society, not rapacious greed and stinginess at the highest levels. If leaders simply started with reducing poverty, then the rest of the chain of misery would start to diminish and the world would be heading in a different direction towards prosperity and well-being rather than misery, violence and downfall. And so what you hear is talk about reducing poverty, but it never really happens. Then you know that the leaders are not following what is righteous, what is true, what is straight. Instead, they're following this pathway that we've just seen in the Chakravati Sutta, which links very nicely with the Adhamika Sutta, that leads to complete and utter misery and living in fear, living in hate, living in polarization, living in violence. This leads to tremendous downfall. What the corrupt leaders and anyone who supports or follows the actions of such leaders fails to see, or maybe they haven't been taught, is karma. Karma, if you remember, is our volitional actions or activities by body, speech and mind that have wholesome and unwholesome results. And the Buddha frames it really well in the Samsapaniya Sutta. So this is Anguttanikaya chapter 10, discourse number 216. The Buddha says, and what because is that exposition of the Dhamma on creeping? Because being the owners of their Kamma, the heirs of their Kamma, they have Kamma as their origin, Kamma as their relative, Kamma as their resort. Whatever Kamma they do, good or bad, they are its heirs. So we know this from the five frequent contemplations. This is the fifth one. And so we go on. Here someone engages in the 10 unwholesome conduct. He creeps along by body, speech and mind. His bodily karma is crooked. His verbal karma is crooked. His mental karma is crooked. His destination is crooked. His rebirth is crooked. But for one with a crooked destination and rebirth, I say there is one of two destinations either the exclusively painful hells or a species of creeping animal. And what are the species of creeping animals? The snake, the scorpion, the centipede, the mongoose, the cat, the mouse and the owl, or any other animals that creep away when they see people. Thus a being is reborn from a being. One is reborn through one's deeds. When one has been reborn, contacts affect one. It is in this way I say that beings are the heirs of their karma. So in the case of corruption and crooked actions or karma, 
One is the heir of that crooked comma, with a crooked destination and lower realm rebirth to be expected. We see the alignment with the leader who is crooked in the simile of the cattle crossing the ford and those that follow the crooked path. So this is not a good outcome. If we understand the gravity of what the Buddha means and having the right view, then we would refrain from crooked comma. So this is all the corruption, fraud, all the unwholesome actions. And we would encourage others to refrain from crooked kamma as well. In the Saraga Sutta, this is Anguttarikaya chapter 4, discourse number 66, the Buddha refers to four kinds of persons found in the world. In the extract from this sutta, the Buddha says, because there are these four people found existing in the world, what four? The lustful, the hating, the deluded, and the conceited. So he goes on and explains a little more, but we're not going to go in depth with the different kinds of people. But in these verses at the end of the sutta, the Buddha says, Beings enamored of tantalizing things, seeking delight in whatever is pleasing, low beings bound by delusion, increase their bondage. The ignorant go about creating unwholesome karma, born of lust, hatred, and delusion. Distressful deeds born productive of suffering, people hindered by ignorance blind, lacking eyes to see, in accordance with their own nature, do not think of it in such a way. When we have ignorance and wrong view, then we keep practicing and going the wrong way, and it leads to more suffering, bondage, and absolute misery. This is why it's important to heed the Buddha's teachings to abandon ignorance and replace wrong view with right view. Right view includes the proper understanding of karma. If we understand karma, then we practice with the right view and walk the wholesome path rooted in non-greed, non-hatred and non-delusion. And we certainly refrain from crooked and corrupt actions that are not in line with the Dhamma. We can now look at the other parts of the Buddha's teachings, which is looking at righteousness or integrity and see what the Buddha has to say, not just for leaders, but also for ourselves. In the suttas, we would often hear the Buddha advise kings, rulers, and leaders, and he would always advise to rule righteously with integrity and decency. In the Tessakuna Jataka, this is Jataka number 521, the Buddha recounted to the bhikkhus an occasion when he admonished King Pasanati of Kosala by saying, A king, sire, ought to rule his kingdom righteously, for whenever kings are corrupt, then also are his officers corrupt. The Buddha then went on to point out, the suffering and the blessing involved in following or abstaining from evil unwholesome actions expounded in detail the misery resulting from sensual pleasures, comparing them to dreams and the like, saying, in the case of these men, no bribe can move relentless death, no kindness mollify, no one in fight can vanquish death, for all are doomed to die. And when they depart to another world, except their own virtuous actions, they have no other sure refuge, so that they must inevitably forsake low associations. And for their reputation's sake, they must not be careless, but be earnest and exercise rule in righteousness. Even as kings of old, before Buddha arose, abiding in the admonition of the wise, ruled righteously and departing, attained to the heavenly city. The Buddha here is reiterating the temporary nature of sensual pleasures and even any ill-gotten gains. And we cannot escape the relentless death 
that Maya Sansara, in that we are all doomed to death, so it is super important to at least take care of our actions, ensure they are wholesome to provide some safety, and if we have any wisdom at all, then to see the urgency of making some effort towards ending the cycle of birth and death and the whole mass of misery and suffering. And the sound advice from the Buddha, found in the suttas that aligns with what we have contemplated so far in the Adhamaka Sutta, is to rule by the Dhamma. The sutta references here we have is Chakravati Sutta, Anguttanikaya Chapter 3, Discourse Number 14, and the Dhammaraja Sutta, Anguttanikaya Chapter 5, Discourse Number 133. The Buddha says, Bhikkhus, even a wheel-turning monarch, a righteous king who rules by the Dhamma, does not turn the wheel without a king above him. When this was said, a certain bhikkhu said to the Blessed One, Babante, who is the king above a wheel-turning monarch, a righteous king who rules by the Dhamma? It is the Dhamma, bhikkhu, the Blessed One said. Here, bhikkhu, a wheel-turning monarch, a righteous king who rules by the Dhamma, relying just on the Dhamma, honouring, respecting and venerating the Dhamma, taking the Dhamma as his standard banner and authority, provides righteous protection, shelter, and guard for the people in his court. Again, a will-turning monarch, a righteous king, who rules by the Dhamma, relying just on the Dhamma, honouring, respecting, and venerating the Dhamma, taking the Dhamma as his standard banner and authority, provides righteous protection, shelter, and guard for his Katya vassals, his army, Brahmins, and householders, the people of town and countryside, ascetics and Brahmins, and the animals and birds. Having provided such righteous protection, shelter and guard for all these beings, that wheel-turning monarch, a righteous king, who rules by the Dhamma, turns the wheel solely through the Dhamma, a wheel that cannot be turned back by any hostile human being. What we find here is the leader that should be above all of our leaders, and that is the Dhamma. What it means to rule by the Dhamma is to rely on the Dhamma, honour it, respect it, venerate it, and take it as the authority. Imagine all the decisions that would be made in accordance with the Dhamma and the wholesome results that would follow. If our leaders, even just one leader, were to rule by the Dhamma in this way, then it would be for the welfare and benefit of all who fall under their leadership. The example that would be set would be wholesome, righteous, and ethical. And the land and all its inhabitants would prosper and follow that good example. The same thing even applies for us. If we live our lives ruled by the Dhamma, then everyone around us would be protected by the goodness that transpires as a result of living and being under the rule of the Dhamma. Once that will is turned in that way, then no hostile human being can turn it back. And it's for the well-being of the whole community in which we inhabit as well. So there's much here that is very important about taking Dhamma as the standard authority and the thing that guards us. There are a couple more Jathakas or past birth stories of the Buddha that are quite interesting and will add more to our study of overcoming the misery of corruption. This next Jataka is Rajavata Jataka, number 334, and it's linked to the last one that we looked at, the Tessa Kuna Jataka. 
In this particular Jataka, the Buddha is recounting another of his past births to King Pasanadi of Kosala. And at that time, King Brahmadatta ruled over Banaras. The Bodhisattva was born to a Brahmin family, and when he came of age, he decided to adopt the ascetic life. He developed all the faculties and attainments, and took up residence in the Himalayas, living on wild fruits and roots. King Brahmadatta went to visit the Bodhisattva to see if he would give him feedback on his faults. When the king had asked all over his kingdom, no one was willing to declare any faults, only good things, and he was dissatisfied with that response. Upon reaching the hermitage of the Bodhisattva, after saluting him and addressing him in a friendly manner, the king took a seat to one side. At that moment, the Bodhisattva was eating some ripe figs that he had gathered from the forest. They were luscious and sweet, like powdered sugar. And he addressed the king and said, Your Excellency, pray eat this ripe fig and drink some water. The king did so and asked the Bodhisattva, Why, Venerable Sir, is this ripe fig so exceedingly sweet? Your Excellency, he replied, The king now exercises his rule with justice and equity. That is why it is so sweet. In the reign of an unrighteous king does it lose its sweetness, sir. Yes, Your Excellency, in the time of unrighteous kings, oil, honey, molasses and the like, as well as wild roots and fruits, lose their sweetness and flavour. And not these only, but the whole realm becomes bad and flavourless. But when the rulers are righteous, these things become sweet and full of flavour, and the whole realm recovers its tone and flavour. The king said, It must be so, venerable sir. And without letting him know that he was the king, he saluted the Bodhisattva and returned to Banaras. And thinking to prove the words of the ascetic, he ruled unrighteously, saying to himself, Now I shall know all about it. And after the lapse of a short time, he went back and saluting the Bodhisattva sat respectfully on one side. The Bodhisattva, using exactly the same words, offered him a ripe fig, which proved to be bitter to his taste. Finding it to be bitter, he spat it out, saying, it is bitter, sir. Then the Bodhisattva said, Your Excellency, the king must be unjust, for when rulers are unjust, everything beginning with the wild fruits in the wood lose all their sweetness and flavour. And then the Buddha recites exactly the same verses found in the Adhamaka Sutta. When cattle are crossing a ford, if the chief bull goes crookedly, all the others go crookedly because their leader has gone crookedly. So too among human beings, when one considered the chief behaves corruptly, other people do so as well. The whole country is miserable if the king or leader is corrupt. When cattle are crossing a ford, if the chief bull goes straight across, all the others go straight across, because their leader has gone straight. So too among human beings, when the one considered the chief behaves righteously, other people do so as well. The whole country is easeful if the king or leader is righteous. What we can reflect upon is when the kings and leaders rule in a principled way that is righteous and in line with the Dhamma, founded in virtue and goodness, then the entire realm is imbued with that same virtue and goodness, similar to the sweetness, the tone and flavour of the luscious and exceedingly sweet ripe fig offered by the Buddha to the king on his first visit. But when the kings and leaders rule in an unprincipled way, full of corruption that is not in line with the Dhamma, founded on immorality and crookedness, 
then the entire realm is imbued with that same immorality and crookedness, similar to the sharp bitterness of the ripe fig that was later offered by the Buddha to the king on his second visit. And isn't that how we feel right now? Imbued and immersed in the bitterness and resultant misery of our increasingly corrupt and crooked world. Unfortunately, as we've said, you only have to look at the news headlines to see the foolishness and ignorance in the world. Headlines of massive corruption, scams, shady dealings, bribery, rorts, and justice hardly ever being served on those who lie, cheat, kill and steal. The other Jataka to briefly mention is the Mugapaka Jataka. This is 538. There's a separate Dhamma talk on this Jataka that highlights one of the great renunciations made by the Bodhisattva before becoming the Buddha. It's a very moving tale and packs a punch when it comes to the incredible levels of renunciation in order to develop this perfection and also as an example of the Bodhisattva wanting to avoid the hell realms. To briefly highlight the past birth, we find the Bodhisattva reborn as Prince Temya, who at a very young age recalls his past birth and that he was a king for 20 years, and then he suffered 80,000 years in the Usada hell, and now he is again reborn to a royal family, which he refers to as a house of robbers, and his father, when four robbers were brought before him, made a ruling uttering very cruel words that would lead to hell. So Prince Temir thinks if he becomes the king, which is his royal privilege, then he can expect to be reborn again in hell and suffer great pain there. The Buddha recounts the great lengths Prince Temir goes to, having been advised by a deity to pretend to be deaf and mute, to avoid becoming the king. He is teased, tortured, burned, seduced, bullied, and more. And eventually he is sent away to be killed, but he avoids that and is able to live the life of an ascetic, and soon after his parents and the entire kingdom join his order. The key point of including this Jataka is to recognize the danger of being the king or queen, ruler, leader, judge, or any position of power. It is those leadership roles and positions of power that usually entail crooked kamma by body, speech, and mind. Problems need to be solved, decisions, judgments, or rulings that will affect the masses that need to be made. And so these positions are mired with crooked kamma. If we can put ourselves in Prince Temir's position, even for a moment, and see what the Bodhisattva saw, then it would make a huge difference in the choices we make out in the world. It is already hard enough as an ordinary person in the world, let alone if one were to be in power or leadership. It also makes us truly consider what we advise our family members, particularly the youth and our friends, colleagues and community. The world, our society, it pushes us towards power, prestige, leadership and the worldly yardstick, what takes us away from the Dhamma, the wholesome path. But the Buddha in his complete wisdom cautions us to take care, as there are very grave dangers in the worldly domain dangers that lead to the lower realms. So this is very sound advice and very critical in terms of how we look at the distinction between the misery of corruption and the prosperity and well-being of righteousness.
What the Buddha encourages is towards Dhamma, not non-Dhamma. In the Padma Dhamma Sutta, this is Anguttara Nikaya chapter 10, discourse number 113, the Buddha says, Because what is non-Dhamma and harmful should be understood, and what is Dhamma and beneficial should also be understood. Having understood what is non-Dhamma and harmful, and also what is Dhamma and beneficial, one should practice in accordance with Dhamma and with what is beneficial. And what because is non-dhamma and harmful? Wrong view, wrong intention, wrong speech, wrong action, wrong livelihood, wrong effort, wrong mindfulness, wrong concentration, wrong knowledge and wrong liberation. This is what is said to be non-dhamma and harmful. And what because is dhamma and beneficial? Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, right knowledge and right liberation. This is what is said to be Dhamma and beneficial. So what the Buddha is saying here is that the Noble Tenfold Path is what is Dhamma and beneficial. And what is non-Dhamma and harmful is the Wrong Tenfold Path. So it's pretty clear what path we must develop and practice if we have any conviction or confidence in the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha. For those already on the Noble Eightfold Path, the blessings of the path and practice are already apparent. It is easier to turn away from the world and to practice in accordance with the Dhamma, encouraging others to do the same. There is ease and well-being in following a righteous and perfected leader, such as the Buddha, as he takes that straight path across the ford, not the crooked one. When he says straight, he says Uju. That means it is a path that is imbued with metta. It is upright, the beginning of how we practice the Karaniya Metta Sutta. And when we follow that same path across the ford, the one that leads towards true safety, where it's heading is towards Nibbana. And so even from our own practice, it's important to be that good example in our families, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in the groups that we participate in at work. In many ways, our behavior may filter upwards and across and all around. That anyone who connects with us, has dealings with us in the world, sees that goodness, sees the morality and integrity in our behavior, and it trickles possibly in small ways upwards. And in our practice, there's something very strong that anybody who keeps sila it keeps the world in balance. If you keep the precepts, if you honour them, if you see it as being ruled by the Dhamma, it could be even worse if we didn't follow the Buddha's path. And so we are doing something of great benefit to the world. And so we are protected by the Devas. They honour people who keep precepts, who are generous, who are walking the path of the Buddha. The last sutta to reference is one that we've studied before where we had a longer Dhamma session. It is the Mahasaropama Sutta, Majjhiminikaya Discourse number 29, and it's the greater discourse on the simile of the heartwood. The reason that we bring this in here is for those who are walking the supramundane path, those that are leaning towards Nibbana and wanting to attain Nibbana. When you see the world and the misery of the world, when you see the danger in central pleasures in the world, and you truly see the benefit of renunciating the world, 
for all the right reasons, whether you're a layperson or a monastic, then you realize that you need to do the higher training, the training in virtue, the training in concentration of the mind, and the training in wisdom. So Adisila, Adichitta, Adipanya. And to develop the Noble Eightfold Path that leads to the Noble Tenfold Path, then you see that you're not taken up by gain, honor, and praise in the world, which is everything that is enticing about the worldly yardstick. And so you keep training and you start to see the benefit of the attainment of virtue. And you keep practicing and then you see the benefit of the attainment of concentration. And you keep practicing some more and you see the benefit of knowledge and vision. And you keep practicing until you attain to the unshakable deliverance of mind, which is Nibbana. So this is the thing. Understanding about the misery of corruption is very helpful because you start to Nibbita, turn away in disgust, not wanting to seek things from the world externally. You start turning inwards, going internally, purifying, following the Buddha's instructions, getting to the higher concentrations of mind, developing wisdom founded on virtue. And so you understand why the path is set that way. When we contact the world, that's where the challenges come because the wrong view starts to come in again. We need to protect the mind with the right view. But when you practice and you go out into the world, it's very challenging. And so the encouragement is to keep at it, to keep seeing this misery of corruption, not to be drawn out for gain, honor or praise, but to keep very much on the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path that ultimately leads to the Tenfold Path because it has right knowledge and right liberation as its culmination. So the Buddha says in the Mahasaropama Sutta, so this spiritual life because does not have gain, honor and praise for its benefit, or the attainment of virtue for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable deliverance of mind that is the true goal of this spiritual life, its heartwood and its end. That is what the Blessed One said, the bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. We've now come to the end of our Dhamma session. We can share the merit with all sentient beings. May all beings be happy and well. May all beings be free from suffering. Blessings of the Triple Gem, wishing you well. Teruan Saranai.